How and why do people disappear? If you brought somebody in to help you disappear, have you actually disappeared? We will deal with missing persons on a daily basis, so we're the national experts. Every year, over 300,000 reports of a missing person are made to the police. Even if you're not doing anything wrong, you're being watched. You'll go missing, and we'll allow it that you're Don't never found. We are perfectly capable of holding on to important secrets. So who here has an iPhone? Your duly elected representatives have been consistently Could somebody go missing without a trace? I'm not sure. You're not looking for them. You're looking for the information they left behind. I'm Tim Weaver, author of the David Raker series. Over the course of Missing, I'll be investigating how people can vanish in the 21st century and how we find them again. Join me as I speak with experts in forensics, human behaviour, surveillance and investigation, and we look into the art of disappearance. On the last episode of Missing, I found out that 250,000 people disappear in the UK every year. Of that number, 97% are found within a week and 99% within the first year. But what about that remaining 1%? Who are they? How are they still missing? And the biggest question of all, why do they disappear in the first place? Somebody who has become dominated by thoughts of guilt of a lack of self-control, everything has been tainted, the life that they live at the moment is unsupportable, and they have to disappear. Hello, my name's Nigel Blackwood. I'm a forensic psychiatrist working at King's College London. There are other less likely but still very interesting scenarios, I think. One is somebody who's overwhelmed by a sense of inauthenticity. So the old Polonius idea of to thine own self be true, of somebody who has, for various psychological reasons, found themselves in a situation where they're inhabiting a rather false self, which has become painful to live within, which they feel does not represent their whole self, that there's an authentic self struggling to come out, and that perhaps this person is somewhat avoidant of conflict, can't work this through in a series of arguments and changes in their life, and in a rather absolutist way go for a sort of, I just have to disappear and re-establish myself in a more authentic way, away from all the things that are tethering me to this inauthentic life. That's so interesting. So, so someone may almost go mentally beyond themselves and be able to see themselves very clearly in a kind of, almost as a third person. I think all of us have unlived lives. Uh, I'm now going to feel I'm terribly trapped in my own, but... Um, that there is something else. Uh, inauthenticity, I think, is a very uncomfortable psychological state. A very good American uh, psychologist wrote about this in the late 50s called Leon Festinger, who talked about a state of cognitive dissonance where you've got two differing views or emotions or beliefs that you hold simultaneously and you try desperately to get some sort of resolution between these differing states. So that sort of feeds into these ideas of inauthenticity, which again feels people who do things that feel 
inauthentic to themselves, feel as if that has a sort of moral dimension. You know, they want to cleanse themselves. And in a particular state, that can be worked through in the situation that you're in. But if, as I say, you're somewhat avoidant, it becomes overpowering, there can be that desire to just cut off and disappear. That's obviously at the extreme end of things, but I'm guessing there are different stages of depression. The, the person who's struggling with a sense of inauthenticity might have some depressive thoughts, cognitions within that picture for sure. But I guess the, the stronger depressive picture is dominated by you've almost lost sight of others' views of yourself. You've disappeared into this tortured self where there's no sense of a future... The past is littered with failures. You're taking all the negatives from the environment around you and that there is nothing else to do but to disappear. At the mild end, you can have some of the thoughts, the negative thoughts about the self, about the future. As you become through to the most severe end, you have more what are called biological symptoms of the disorder. So your sleep becomes very disordered. There's early morning wakening. Your appetite reduces. Um, you feel particularly bad first thing in the morning as you're looking forward to another day of gloom. There's also a very unusual neuropsychiatric state, which we refer to as a dissociative fugue, where somebody typically in reaction to a traumatic event goes wandering away from their past lives, loses contact with their sense of self, their autobiographical memories. If they appear, for example, in a casualty department during this fugue state, they may appear confused about who they are, why they've got to where they are. This state typically lasts only a number of hours but it can go on for days, and it's said that it can go on for longer than that, and that there can be the establishing of an alternative identity within the context of that fugue state as it develops. But that's highly unusual. And what's the trigger for that? It's typically said to be somebody who is exposed to something traumatic and therefore dissociates from their current life, their current identity, and wanders away. There are, of course, famous cases that are written up as potential fugue states. So Agatha Christie disappearing in 1926 after her husband revealed that he wanted to divorce her and be with another woman uh, led to her famous disappearance for 11 days. Uh, and then, of course, there's the potential for more criminally-minded others to pretend to be in a fugue state. So, of course, Walter White does this in Breaking Bad. So we have to be careful about how it's used. But I think there is certainly a phenomenon of being exposed to something traumatic and dissociating from the power of that event and losing a sense of self and disappearing off uh, to be missing for perhaps a number of days. But for some people, there are much simpler motivations for disappearing. Three reasons, money, violence and information. 
Frank M. A. Hearn helps people disappear for a living and has even written a book about it entitled How to Disappear. The money is I owe somebody a ton of money and they're going to kill me or went into business with the wrong people. I owe them money and they're going to kill me. Or the straight up violence is I have a stalker. They won't stop. And the money is also I lost everything. I got some seed money. I just want to disappear and be found again. And then there's the information part. The internet has, you know, ruined many of people's lives who have done really stupid things. And the problem is you can't delete that information. But what I do is kind of I, I disappear them, but I tweak their online information through deception and it kind of makes their life a little easier. An example would be Joe Blow did something really stupid. And what I do is create 50 Joe Blows all over the world. And one of those Joe Blows takes responsibility for that really stupid thing. So what I do is I create this whole illusion online using your information, but putting a different face, a different city, something different about them. So it's money, violence, and information. It must be quite hard for you to distinguish between people who come to you for uh, very clear and clinical reasons and, and people who've come to you with sort of nefarious reasons and are telling you lies. I mean, how do you tell the two apart? Well, you know, my philosophy is your cop, criminal, or crazy until proven otherwise. And, you know, typically what happens is legitimate people discuss their problems with me, okay? And other people will have these this like plan i need to do a b c d how do i do it and typically that involves some huge chunk of money that they want to get out of the country without disclosing and i mean i have people emailing me telling me they're authors they want to know if i would take a look at like you know they have some questions about a book they're writing about somebody who's disappearing and i know it's not true i'll say we'll send over the chapter and i never hear from them again so the legitimate people you know are very upfront with their problem and they don't know what to do and the you know criminals and nefarious characters typically have an agenda we've kind of specialized in psychopathy and and you had a very interesting uh, research into how their brain is kind of for want of a better word wired very differently to the rest of us maybe you could talk a little bit about that Forensic psychiatry looks particularly at the interface between mental illness and criminal behaviours. We followed that through to adulthood and looked at antisocial men who met criteria for psychopathy or who did not meet diagnostic criteria for psychopathy. And we show have shown clear structural brain differences in their grey matter, in their white matter, and functional brain differences in the way in which they process things like punishment cues. If someone was a psychopath then, would that make them better at disappearing, do you think? They are certainly fluent, plausible liars. And Cleckley used a beautiful phrase that's referred to their duping delight. You know, their love of setting up a whole series of lies and seeing to the extent to which you buy it. They do not have that sense of shame or embarrassment that helps you and I to stay pro-social when we think about bad things we've done, that sort of intense, unpleasant feeling about associated with, 
with things that you've done wrong or that you've hurt others, which therefore informs your future behaviour. You're going to be a little bit nicer in the future. They don't have that shame. Their pulse rate doesn't go up. They don't sweat when you ask them to recount things that they've, terrible things that they've done or that to you or I would be associated with intensely unpleasant emotions. So there is that sort of fluid sense of moving through life, using what they want, getting what they want, typically using violence in an instrumental way to get what they want, sex, power, money. So the tie-in with a going missing idea, I suppose to some extent these people typically go missing from key relationships all the way through their lives. At one point, you got to tell me what the deal is. And I, I basically have this mantra or this, this philosophy. If you lie to me once, I'm keeping your money and you'll never hear from me again. As simple as that. And, it, and it's happened before where somebody's paid me. And then it's like, well, you know, Frank, this is what I really want to, you know, you know I, I got $192,000, you know, in Canada. I'm trying to get into the Caribbean. How would I do that? I'm like, eh, wrong. And that's it. A lot of people can't disappear because they don't have the means. It's like relocating. Listen, we all want to live in the most beautiful city in the world. But the reality is not all of us can afford to do it or get a job there. And that's the reality of disappearing. Yeah, you want to disappear and go there, but you'll run out of money in three months from now and you'll be back home. You know, that's, that's, that's the problem is, you know, disappearing is relocating except a lot more discreetly. Would you say as a rule that, that people need to be pretty financially well off to disappear properly? No, you can do it on a budget. You know, the, the, I mean, you do need that seed money getting you from point A to point B. You need to operate under a corporation. You know, you need seed money because, you know, if you're in London and you're going to go disappear in, you know, Paris, you don't take a plane straight to Paris. So, you know, you'll, you'll fly out of London and maybe go to, you know, Madrid or from Madrid to Berlin or take a train up to Paris, you know, something like that. So you do need some seed money where you're not going directly and plus, you know, you want to rent an apartment but you don't want the lease in your name. You're going to put in a company name. So you'll have to put a couple of months of monthly deposits in advance and so – you know, calling on a prepaid phone and prepaid debit cards. So, I mean, there are certain fees, but, I mean, you can do it on a, on a reasonable budget. The more money you have and the more assets you have makes it more expensive because we have to deal with, like, selling your assets. We have to deal with, you know, how do we get your money from point A to point B and then get it on to point C to point D. So there's a whole lot more to set up. There's a lot of, you know, offshore corporations, offshore bank accounts. There's expatriating your money properly so there's no tax issues. That's, that's one of the biggest things I'm always concerned with is – you know, because sometimes people contact me for nefarious reasons. And so dealing with somebody's money legally is really important. But if you're a waitress or you're, you're just a bartender in some bar and not that there's anything wrong with that and you don't have a lot of money, I can pick you up and disappear you like in 30 days, no problem, because we don't have all that excess baggage to deal with. Plus, the other thing is, too, is, you know, we have to deal with your family. I mean, I always tell my clients, look, 
you have to let somebody in your life know you disappeared. Because if not, they may go to the police and report you missing. Next thing you know, you're the biggest story in the BBC. Okay, so we have to do this properly. And then it's educating their family. Listen, I don't care if the FBI calls you. You know, you don't believe who they are. You never tell anybody anything. So there's a lot of background information and education that takes place. Can anyone disappear? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. There's clearly a unique pressure to consciously disappearing, to trying to disguise your real identity and adapt to a new environment and a brand new life. When writing my books, and especially in planning the characters, I've constantly tried to put myself into the shoes of the missing, to imagine what it must be like to be that person, and both Nigel and Frank reinforce my view of how difficult and complex the issue is. To start again somewhere, to wipe all trace, or at the very least most traces, of yourself from existence. Mostly, to walk away from people you love. I think for the majority of us, that goes against the way we're built. As Nigel said, humans have a hard time functioning in isolation. Which is why I keep coming back to that 1%. The two and a half thousand people who disappear and never resurface. How do they remain off the radar? How would you do it? Would you even know where to start? How many aspects of your life make you traceable? You've probably used your bank card today. Chances are, the device you're listening on now is tracking your location and your lifestyle choices. So how would any of us stay invisible in a world of phones, social media and cameras on every street? Next week on Missing. Surveillance is everywhere. There is no option to say no to the internet. Your mobile telephone is a tracking device that you can make telephone calls with. It's the surveillance episode, and how we're never out of view.